let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have said that your word is given to help us trust Jesus uh, for salvation and to teach, rebuke, correct and train us so that we can live as his people. Uh, We pray in your mercy that your word would do your good work in our lives today and that you would help us to understand it and help me to teach it clearly and truthfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, Christmas is now only 19 days away and uh, we will be celebrating the birth... Uh, the birth of our Saviour, rejoicing that Jesus, born in a stable, is God with us. Lord of all, we will sing of peace. We'll rejoice with Zechariah of God's presence with his people to deliver them from their enemies. We'll wonder with Mary at God through this act, scattering the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And we see and we don't see what we rejoice in. Isn't that true? I mean, we see it. Now we have peace with God through Jesus' death for our sins. Now Jesus has authority to give the life of God to us. We see what we rejoice in and yet we don't see it. There is no peace in the world. And God's people are harassed and oppressed by their enemies. I mean, that was true from the beginning of the church. In Revelation, we read that the church in Smyrna was enduring imprisonment and poverty, that Antipath, the faithful witness, had been murdered in Pergamon. Uh, I mean, true from the beginning, true throughout history. Think of, they say, the massacre of the Huguenots on St Bartholomew's Day in 1572, or the imprisonment and death of Christians in Russia under Stalin, and actually God's people harassed and oppressed today. Read the Barnabas Fund newsletter and you'll hear of Christians oppressed in Pakistan and Iran, being killed in Nigeria under pressure in parts of China. Even here there's concern about pressure on Christian teaching, on sexuality and gender. God's people still know trial, distress, persecution, danger and death for faithfulness to Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 8, all day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The rule of God's King Jesus is ignored by many. And you wonder, don't you, sometimes what's going on? If Jesus has won the victory, why do his people still suffer? Why in, in, is this a world where the proud and contemptuous still assert their will? Who really is in charge? Will this kind of thing go on forever? Now, while it's not the whole answer to those questions, Ezekiel 38 to 39, the story of Gog and his hordes, actually has a lot to say to our hearts as we ponder these questions in the lead up to Christmas. Here are things we need to hear. Now, a lot has been made of this passage and the passages in Revelation 19 and 20 that look back to it as people try and identify contemporary events and characters with those spoken of here. And if you want to test that, just type Gog and Magog into your Google search engine, but I really wouldn't spend a lot of time on it. You see, Ezekiel is written in language and with images that made sense to Ezekiel's hearers, those exiles in Babylon. And so when we're reading this passage, we have to make sure that we read it with care and respect for its context and the issues Ezekiel is addressing for the exiles and not with our modern preoccupations. 
So what is the context? And what issues does that raise for Ezekiel's first hearers? Well, Ezekiel 38 to 39 comes after God's promises to his people in Ezekiel 34 to 37. In fact, they assume the fulfilment of those promises. The people, we are told, are people who are dwelling in peace, enjoying prosperity in the land identified as Israel. They've been gathered from all the nations, verses 8 and 12, and are now living without fear and enjoying the prosperity promised back in Ezekiel 36. So this is a cleansed people, a people with hearts to do God's will, a people in covenant relationship with the Lord, over whom the Lord rules, marked out as his own by the gift of his spirit. And this encounter with God comes after 34 to 37 and before 40 to 48. And those chapters, which we'll look at next week, present Ezekiel's glorious vision of the end when the Lord dwells amongst his people forever in a new creation. So in this context, these chapters address three issues. Firstly, they continue to tell us what the Lord will do to make his holy name known to his people and the nations. Remember, this issue became front and centre in chapter 36. There we learnt in verse 20 that Israel going into exile as a result of God's judgment on their sin profaned, debased, made common God's holy name. They tarnished God's reputation. They caused and supported dangerous lies about God, made the nations think that the Lord was some weak or uncaring God, not as powerful as their idols. So God promised there to act, to act for the sake of his holy name, act to restore his reputation. And so the question is, what will God do? Now, we start to see the first part of that answer in chapter 36. We saw it there, didn't we? God promised to gather his people, to cleanse them, to give them a new heart, a whole new life from his spirit to his people. That is, God promised he would make it possible for his people to live as his covenant people and enjoy all the blessings of that relationship, the peace and the prosperity that came with living in his land as his people. Through his saving his people, all would see God's goodness, might and faithfulness. But would the nations all know and confess the truth about God because of that? Would that saving action alone restore the Lord's reputation among the nations? What if some of them kept thinking that, well, Israel was beaten and dispossessed just because they and their gods were stronger than the Lord? And so these nations kept on believing lies about the Lord that at best he was just some local god, a a national god like their gods. What if some of the nations were, in a sense, saying to the Lord, you said you were punishing your people by sending them to exile, but we don't believe it. It wasn't you, it was us. We were just stronger. Oh, yes, you've gathered them again. You may have a little power. You know, you may have chosen your moment well, but you don't have enough power to stop us from doing what we want in the world, stop us doing what we want to your people. Yeah, we still think of you as just one God among many and not as strong as us or our gods. <coughs> so despite God's saving work, 
They just keep on slandering God, believing the lies about God that suited them and their claim to power and rule in the world. So what is the Lord? For the sake of his holy name, for the sake of being known as he is and as he's revealed himself to be, the only true God, the creator and Lord of heaven and earth, the just judge of all, going to do about that, going to do with the nations persisting in believing lies about him. Remember that it's actually good and right that the Lord be known as he is, honoured in truth. Our hope and life, creation's hope and life, is actually in the Lord being the Lord, the God he says he is. There's only darkness and death in denying him, believing lies about him. And that's not just an issue in the pages of Ezekiel. That kind of misunderstanding and misrepresentation continues. We still encounter it. Think of the work of Jesus. In the life and death of Jesus, God is judging and saving his people, doing what he said he would do in Ezekiel 36, cleansing them, giving them new hearts, giving them his spirit. It's a work of extraordinary power and wisdom, revealing God as the one with the power of life and death, the one who can give life to the dead, the God who always keeps his word, the God who is gracious, merciful and kind. And he has made known that work throughout the world. But has it stopped people believing lies about God? Well, we know the answer to that, don't we? No. Some just say that Christians have got it wrong about Jesus, that he was a failure getting himself killed like that and that the real power and truth belongs to those who put him to death with human rulers and authorities. Others just ignore it. Reckon it's irrelevant. Oh, good for believers if you want to believe it, but not something that everyone should have to pay attention to. Not something that means Jesus is Lord. Lord of all, their Lord. You see, many believe and live as if the human will rules and human power is stronger and owns the world and we can keep on living however we want to. The Lord is saved. The Lord's kept his word, but still his name is slandered, his revelation of himself rejected. But the Lord is the God of the whole earth, and he said he will glorify his name. What will he do to vindicate his name in the face of this unbelief, this continuing rejection of his rule? Ezekiel 38 to 39 will tell us what the Lord will do to make his holy name known, to vindicate his holiness before the nations who proudly ignore him. And there's actually a warning here for everyone who wants to persevere in being their own rulers, a warning for you if you want to live ignoring God and ruling your life your own way. That's the first issue. What's the second issue? Well, coming before Ezekiel's vision of the end in chapters 40 to 48. Chapters 38 to 39 also tell us what else has to happen beside the Lord giving new life to his people before the end, before the full and complete and eternal enjoyment of his presence with his people. And they tell us a little of the character of that coming time. Now that's something that believers in Jesus are waiting for and looking forward to the establishment of God's eternal kingdom. We're, we're in God's presence by sight and not just by faith. So 
you know, what happens before the end is something that we have an interest in. And finally, Ezekiel 38 to 39 addresses the fears of the exiles by answering a very practical question that they had. Remember what the people Ezekiel was preaching to had experienced? Violent conquest, destruction of their land, dispossession as judgment on their sin. Now in the future, God is promising them in these chapters in Ezekiel where they come to know his grace, where with new hearts they live new lives of repentance and faith in him. They were wondering, would that ever happen again? Would they always have to live with that anxiety, that fear of dispossession hanging over their heads? Would it happen again even when they're at peace with God? And again, that's something for us. If we're at peace with God, do we have to fear anything else? Is it possible that human might and power, human might and power, the hostility believers do face could overturn God's good intention for us, take away from us what God has promised to give us? Because let's face it, human power is very real in our world and often opposed to the rule of Jesus and his people. So three issues, three questions the context raises. What will God, who is rightly concerned for his reputation, his name, do in the face of persistent unbelief and misrepresentation? Secondly, what has to happen before the longed-for end? And can God's people be secure in a world of opposition to the Lord? So let's get on with the story. It's taken place sometime in the future, the indefinite future, after the fulfilment of the promises of 36 to 37. It speaks about these things happening after many days, in the latter years, in the latter days. And at the beginning, we meet Gog. Now, there's a lot of speculation, especially amongst dispensational Christians, about the identity of Gog. And throughout the years, Christians have sought to identify Gog with various figures in their own day. But Gog's actually portrayed, including for the first hearers, with an aura of mystery that enhances his ominous threat. Uh, The name Gog's thought to be a corruption of the name of a famous and already dead king of Lydia, Gorgigius. Now, Lydia, Magog, the land of Gog, along with Meshech and Tubal, were realms in Anatolia, in modern Turkey. So Ezekiel is talking of powerful and warlike peoples on the edge of the world as the Israelites knew it, nations that Israel had had no direct contact with. And the nations that Ezekiel mentions here and then in verses 5 to 6 were all famed warlike nations at the boundaries of Israel's world, known for their ferocity and brutality. And there were Meshach and Shubal along with Beth Torgama and Goma to the north and then Paras, Cush and Put, military allies of Egypt to the south. So Gog is seen as heading up a military confederacy that surrounds Israel that has both military prowess and hordes of people, vast manpower resources. The seven nations represent, in a sense, the totality of opposition to the Lord's people. Gog, you see, is the complete enemy and his is overwhelming force. He'll come on like a storm. He'll be like a cloud covering the land. 
and the character of this archetypal enemy, this representation of all those who are opposed to the Lord, is revealed in verses 10 to 13, where the Lord gives us insight into what Gog's thinking. On that day, (coughs) thoughts will come into your mind and you'll devise an evil scheme and say, I'll go up against the land of unwalled villages. I'll fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without heat, to seize, spoil and carry off plunder. Gog's intention is to visit destruction and misery on an innocent and peaceable people for his own enrichment and the enhancement of his reputation. You see, in this world, Gog does whatever pleases him. Without any restraint on his power, he's only answerable to himself. This peaceful people might be the Lord's people, precious to him, gathered by him, but that makes no difference. Gog's attitude is like Pharaoh's, who said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know the Lord. You see, Gog and his hordes don't recognise the Lord. They don't know his holy name and they will do whatever they want without regard to him. So Gog, in a sense, is the embodiment of human pride, ignoring, dismissive of the Lord. But we know what Gog does not. It's actually the Lord who's in charge, the Lord who is conscripting Gog in his pride and greed to reveal his own glory. Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army. Or again, in chapter 39, I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. It's the Lord who is bringing God against his land for his purpose, verse 16, that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. But this time, as the Lord brings Gog and his armies, the Lord will not be vindicating his holiness by bringing Gog to judge his sinful people Israel. He makes that plain in verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? Remember the situation of Ezekiel's hearers. They had just experienced judgment through the Lord bringing Nebuchadnezzar against Jerusalem. That judgment had been prophesied for years in Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. And Gog's approaching armies could have looked very much like Nebuchadnezzar's. This could look like a repeat of that experience. But the Lord makes it clear that Gog comes for a very different purpose and with a very different outcome. The Lord says in verses 19 to 20 that when God comes, his just anger and his passion will be aroused to protect his people. And he reveals that at the moment when God's triumph seems inevitable, when God covers the land like a cloud with his hordes to conquer a defenceless people, God will suffer a stunning and comprehensive defeat. It's actually a defeat of cosmic proportions. Verses 19 to 20, the whole earth and all people will know the Lord's presence to defeat the enemies of his people. They'll all tremble 
at Gog's overthrow. And every means possible will be employed against Gog. Overwhelming force he cannot resist. Internal division, disease, floods and hail, fire and sulphur, Gog will be powerless. And 39.3, his weapons useless. The comprehensiveness of the defeat and the humiliation of Gog's pride is what's brought home in chapter 39. In verses 4 to 5, we'll see there'll be no burial and the birds will feast in the open on their corpses. And later in the chapter, we see that when they're buried, it will be by their enemies in unmarked mass graves. Their home bases, verse 6, thought to be so far away and so secure, will be destroyed. They will be completely despoiled. (coughs) And in verse 9 of chapter 39, we see that their weapons that they'd relied on will actually become fuel for the Israelites for seven years. Those that they thought to plunder will plunder them. You see, what is pictured in in chapters 38 to 39 is a defeat that is final, from which these forces will never recover. The Lord's people will never need to fear them again. And this is a victory that's entirely the Lord's. God's people living in peace without a defence are entirely passive in chapter 38. That's right, isn't it, in the text? They offer no resistance. They enter into no alliances. They're not portrayed as doing anything. They only come into the story in chapter 39 to mop up after the victory the Lord has worked for them, to gather the spoil and then to bury the dead, to cleanse the land, it says, by ensuring that all the remains of Gog's hordes find burial. Now, that may be a strange thing to note, that for seven months that they're going to be burying them. But cleansing by burying actually ensures that Gog's hostility cannot disrupt their relationship with the Lord, cannot disrupt them being able to live in the Lord's presence. There will be no lasting effect from Gog's malice. Now, think about that. Sometimes you and I can feel ashamed by the sin of others, for the sin of others against us, shamed by what they've done to us. And we can wonder if we will ever be freed from it. Well, this is a picture that there will be no legacy of shame or uncleanness from Gog's proud abuse or anyone else's proud abuse of God's defenceless people. You see, God makes provision to ensure that our future will never be marred by the sins of others against us. And that's worth remembering, isn't it? But while the people enjoy the victory, they do nothing to achieve it. It is all the Lord's doing. And the Lord works this victory for his holy name's sake. That's repeated. I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Or again in chapter 39. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. You see, the Lord is determined that all people will know the truth of his revelation of himself as the only God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord who has chosen and called Abraham and his descendants to be his people because he chooses those he saves. He will not let the nations 
keep believing lies about him forever, that he's a fiction or a lesser God or irrelevant. You see, one day the Lord will establish the truth by judging all the proud despisers of his word, his rule and his people. So remember the first of our three questions. What will God, who is rightly concerned for his reputation, his name, do in the face of persistent unbelief and misrepresentation? Well, God has told us that he will vindicate his truth by humbling human pride that resists his rule. He's already shown the foolishness and weakness of human power by saving his people through the death of Jesus, hasn't he? There on the cross he was doing what human wisdom and power could never do, dealing with our sin and death and bringing us forgiveness and eternal life, reconciliation with the just and the holy God, doing what human wisdom and power could never do by doing what human wisdom and power could never imagine doing, giving the holy Son of God to be crucified for the sins of others. God's already demonstrated his might and power and wisdom, yet not all acknowledge him as Lord now, but one day, Every knee will bow to the crucified and risen Jesus. That's what we look forward to at Christmas, the time when Jesus, who's come as a baby, will actually work the final victory for his people by his appearing in glory. Then all will confess the truth of God, that Jesus is Lord, and no one will be able to hold on to their lies anymore. So there is a warning here in Ezekiel in the defeat of the pride of God for everyone. If you want to think that you can live in God's world, ignoring God's King Jesus, living, making decisions as if he does not exist and you can do whatever you think pleases you, enriches you, the warning is, like God, God will bring you into judgment and everything you have put your trust in, like God's weapons, will be worthless to protect you on that day. Gog, in his, in his pride and greed, wasn't successful in defying God. He only served God's purpose. And isn't that humbling to think? That if you persist in your rebellion, you will only serve to demonstrate, like Gog, not your independence and might, but God's justice and power. So heed the warning. And turn back from trusting in yourself, living to please only yourself, and acknowledge the truth that God rules, rules now through his risen son, Jesus the Lord. And while we wait for that day, you can turn back. For the Lord has made himself known, revealed his glory in his son, Jesus, coming to save sinners. That could be you if you turn back to God. And these chapters also tell us what has to happen before the end, before the establishment of God's kingdom, when God dwells with his people in the new heaven and earth, there will be the removal of all rebellion and proud wickedness from God's world. The book of Revelation uses images and language of Ezekiel 38 to 39 to make that same point. There in Revelation 19, the Lord Jesus is pictured as defeating the oppressors of his people with images drawn from the defeat of Gog. And in Revelation 20, those who are deceived by the lies of Satan are characterised by an allusion to Gog and Magog. <laughs> they are seen to be threatening but unable to harm the Lord's people and defeated by the Lord in an 
instant. A defeat that ushers in the final judgment and the end of all wickedness and evil in the lake of fire. You see, we are assured of that end and we wait for it, rejoicing in knowing that evil will not persist. Rebellion, defiance of God will finally be finished and his will alone be done in the new heaven and earth. There will never be a threat to the peace and security of the Lord's people when they dwell in the new Jerusalem. And Ezekiel 38 to 39 gives us hope for that even in the darkest times. Imagine how that defenceless people would feel as they saw Gog's hordes assembling and then rolling out over their land. But those hordes did not achieve their goal. You see, when things looked most threatening for God's people, then our deliverance is closest at hand. And that won't depend on us or our strength. We'll probably feel completely helpless and overwhelmed. It actually depends on the Lord and his strength. But we do wait for that day for just as now the lies of the evil one are at work to dishonour God and bolster people in their rejection of the Lord, so the Lord's gospel is also at work, saving the Lord's people. And it's not until the full number of God's people are saved that the end will come. Our waiting, even under gathering storm clouds, is for God's saving purpose and his glory. But can that gathering hostility harm us? Can the Lord's people be secure in a world of opposition to the Lord? Yes. Like the restored people of Israel in Ezekiel 38, the people who have been cleansed, who have received God's spirit, well, like them, we are secure no matter how bad things look. For them, as for us now, judgment has passed. Our sins have been judged in our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. God brings Gog against his people, not to judge his people, but to judge Gog. In Christ, forgiven, justified by the death of Jesus, believers need not fear judgment ever again. The Lord, it says, is for us. And it is a wonderful thing to have the living God committed to you. You know, that verse I quoted from Romans 8, that uh, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, famously continues, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who are his are eternally protected. But what the Lord calls for us now as we look for the coming of Jesus is trust, not calculation or finding security in secret knowledge that, you know, Gog's hordes are really somehow the internet and the 5G or whatever it is, right? right? Those living in Israel in Ezekiel 38 weren't saved and kept because they had deciphered Gog's communication, learned his secrets or built themselves survival bunkers. They weren't saved because they'd entered into alliances with other powers to secure themselves as sinful Israel did before the destruction of Jerusalem. They were saved by trust. Trust seen in keeping on living as the Lord's covenant.
covenant people, no matter what threatening forces were gathering around them, people on whose hearts God had written his law. And that's the same for us. In the testing of this age, testing by hostile powers, Revelation describes the endurance of the faithful in these terms. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That's what God calls for from us, keeping his commands and keeping on believing in his son Jesus. And so as perhaps we think the forces of God are gathering again, this is what is called for from us. Godly living as the holy people of the holy God marked out by his spirit, godly living that includes practising Christian sexual morality and, yes, practising love. Love for each other, love for our neighbours and love even for our enemies. That's what called for, called for from us, keeping God's commands and abiding trust in and confession of Jesus as Lord, the one who will come again to save all those who are eagerly waiting for him. Ezekiel 38 to 39, with all its language and images, tells us our God reigns. All things and people serve him. So praise him who does reveal his glory, makes himself known in saving now and in judging then, in mercy now to all who call upon him and wrath then, for all who stubbornly resist him. He has revealed his glory in his son, born in a manger. He's revealed his glory in his son, in his cross and resurrection to all those whose eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel now. And one day his glory will be revealed in the Lord Jesus returning to rescue his people and, yes, judge those like who want to keep on believing lies about God so that they can do whatever they want or who refuse to obey his gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word, that this word is for us. Help us to take it to heart and to see the end of all who persist in rebellion against you. Help us to take it to heart and know that you will vindicate the holiness of your name. You will make the truth of yourself known, both in saving and one day in judging. And gracious God, we pray that we would so heed your word that we would be those who are kept by you on that day, kept in Christ who has endured judgment for us, kept as your people, marked out by your spirit, who live now trusting your son and doing your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.